Welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. Today we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to me and that's the social justice Jesus. Uh, with that in mind I want to uh, first have a word of prayer. Father we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit Lord. We ask you to be with us in this study that your Holy Spirit would guide our learning and our understanding Father. I pray that you would fill my listeners and myself, Father, with your Holy Spirit. Help me to teach your word and help the listeners come to understand your words, Father, as recorded in Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I am and always will be an advocate for what someone once called Christianity worth thinking about. Because sometimes I believe we don't really think about what we believe. With that in mind, I want to tell you a story about an ancient sage, ancient wise man who changed the world. Now this wise man fought for justice, championing the cause of the poor and the oppressed. He rejected organized religion, showing tolerance, not judgment, for the outcast and the socially marginalized. He promoted universal love and the brotherhood of man. His unflinching commitment to speak truth to power cost him his life, but his legacy lives on. And he is a model for us today of love, acceptance, and inclusion. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the story in summary. And it's a noble tale, to be sure. But it's a falsehood. It's a fiction. It's an urban legend. And though the story is parroted like a mantra by multitudes, it's even echoed reflexively by otherwise sound spiritual leaders who really ought to know better. No such Jesus ever existed. Rather, taken as a whole, this version of Jesus is just another example of another Jesus bringing another gospel like the ones the Paul, the Apostle Paul anathematized to the Galatians. You know, of course, this is not the first legend about Jesus. Paul chastised the Corinthians, somewhat sarcastically, for their acceptance of teachers fabricating a false Christ generated by a false spirit bringing a false gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. See, the Corinthians were being led astray by the serpent's crafty deceptions, Paul said, just as Eve was, and that goes back to verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 11, abandoning simple devotion to the genuine Jesus for an alluring invention, an alternate Christ. And that trend would continue in the future, Paul warned, with the church turning their ticklish ears from truths to myths to legends choosing man-made fictions over doctrinal facts. He writes about that to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Jesus himself warned of future interlopers, imposters, masquerading as messiahs who would mislead many. That's in Matthew 24, 24. You know, times have changed since the first century, but the Jesus legends abound. There's the legend of Jesus 
of Jesus, the, the mere itinerant moral teacher. There's the legend of Jesus, who is the prophet of Allah. There's the socialist Jesus legend. Then there's the legend of the Gnostic Jesus of the Gospel of Thomas. Then there's the legend of Jesus, the universal Christ. There's the Latter-day Saints or Mormon legend of Jesus, who is the spirit brother of Lucifer. And then there's a New Age teaching about Jesus, the Hindu guru legend. You know, the remaking of the Jewish Messiah from Nazareth into a progressive advocate of social justice is just the latest example of tendency people have to fashion Christ in their own social, spiritual, and political image. And in one sense, it shouldn't surprise us. Most people have a genuine respect for Jesus, and as, as well they should. It's understandable then that on weighty matters, they want Jesus on their side. Although here the tail wags the dog. The point is, not for any of us to get Jesus on our side, but for us to get on Jesus' side. Hands to the plow, not looking back, fit for the kingdom. That's Luke chapter 9 verse 62. But what precisely is Jesus' side though? Given the mishmash of myths, how do we, myths, how do we separate wheat from chaff? Fact from fiction? fiction, legend from history. We can't follow Jesus if we don't have a clear idea of who the real flesh and blood Jesus of history was and which direction he was heading. And then how do we know with any confidence? You know, there's a reliable, a reliable, uncomplicated method that I employ or use to get an accurate, balanced, big picture take on any topic, topic in any section of scripture. And it's perfectly suited for this task. If you say, for example, I want to know everything about how God supernaturally guided the early church, or what Proverbs teaches on leadership, or what the New Testament instructs on prayer, or how the disciples of Jesus preached the gospel in the book of Acts, or, or any of those, I simply read every word of the biblical material I'm interested in. I isolate every package every passage in scripture that has anything to do with, with my topic. Then I arrange the passages in an orderly way to create a thorough, complete, precise portrayal of the topic. It's simple, it's labor-intensive though, but it's a technique anyone can use to get the full, full counsel of any section of scripture on any topic. Now, this approach might be a problem for some people though particularly the more progressive type of person who favors the social Jesus version because they simply don't trust the record. To, to, to many of them, Scripture is not an authoritative account of what God revealed to man. It's simply one version of what certain ancient people believed about God. The Gospels are humanly inspired, not divinely inspired. They're man-made, but they're not God-breathed. But that really doesn't matter. That distinction makes absolutely no difference to my assessment. And I'll tell you why. Nothing about my case has anything to do with whether or not the Bible is divinely in, in, inspired. That is my view, but it's a separate issue for now. Here's the real issue. The real issue is we have one body of detailed information about Jesus. And those are the four Gospels. Now we can accept them as divinely inspired or not. 
we can ac accept them, and many scholars do, as non-inspired human documents that are, in, in the main, historically accurate. You know, we can even accept them as error-ridden writings by primitive people about God and Jesus. But what we can't do, though, is reject the gospel accounts just because, and then advance our own personal opinion of the Jesus of the gospels. Since if we reject the gospel stories about Jesus, then there's not a Jesus left to have a personal opinion about. If you reject the record, and you forfeit your opinion of the man that's, that's in the record. And it's that simple. You know, now of course, you can go through and you can cherry pick verses to fashion a, a, a Jesus in, in your own image or the Jesus that you want. Uh, if so, then I don't have anything to offer you. If that's your project, you're welcome to your fantasy. But don't mistake the views of your make-me-up Christ for the Jews, for the views of Jesus of Nazareth. Because the legend you're going to come up with is going to reflect your opinions and not his. And the question here is simple. What did Jesus come to do? Did he come to preach a socialistic re re redistribution of wealth? Did he come to introduce New Age Hinduism to Torah? observant Jews prophesy for Allah? Did he come to teach us how to attain personal godhood or accomplish Christ consciousness? Did he come to advocate for the poor, the marginal, and the disenfranchised in a campaign for social justice? You know, let's see, see what we can find out. You know, if you're going to separate the real Jesus from legendary Christ of any sort, simply employ my system. I carefully read every line of every gospel, isolated every passage that spoke of Jesus' purpose. References either from Jesus himself, there are clues in, in, in the birth narratives, narratives. there are statements from Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, and I also isolated every reference to the poor. And my search regarding the poor revealed something surprising even to me considering the breadth of the record. Because it turns out, Jesus almost never spoke about the poor. He made only ten specific references to the poor of different sorts if you don't count parallel passages. And even this small number overstates the issue because of an interesting pattern that my search revealed. In the vast majority of cases where Jesus mentions the poor, he does so not to commend the poor as such, but to make a point about something else. Hypocrisy. A point about a, window, a widow's generosity. Or Zacchaeus' repentance. The rich young ruler's confusion. Or a lesson about the afterlife. Now Jesus did care about the financially destitute and he asked and enjoined charity and compassion for them through kindness and voluntary giving to the disadvantaged. You can find that in Luke chapter 12 verse 33, Luke 14 verses 13 to 14. It's a point John the Baptist emphasized as, as well. That's Luke chapter 3 verse 11. But campaigning for the poor, however, was not part of Jesus' project. 
In one sense, Jesus actually was dismissive of the poor when compared to something else that was his greater concern. Yeah, this is in Matthew 26:11. The same verses can be covered in Mark 14:5 through 9, and in John chapter 12, verse 8. He said, "For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me." So, what was it about Jesus Himself that defined His mission mission in a way that completely eclipsed a legitimate and appropriate concern for the financially destitute? Now, Jesus' three remaining references to the poor answer that question. In only two instances did Jesus identify anything about his mission with those people that he considered poor. When preaching on the Sabbath at the synagogue in Nazareth, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. When John the Baptist sent word for prison, questioning in his dark moments whether or not Jesus was indeed, quote, the expected one, Jesus responded to his doubts by reporting the fulfillment of his earlier claim. Go and report to John what you hear. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. It's Matthew chapter 11 verses 4 and 5. You can compare that with Luke chapter 7 verse 22. But there are two important things to note about the poor and the oppressed from these passages. First, it's clear in both references that foundational to Jesus' ministry of mercy, giving sight to the blind, healing the lame, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, was preaching the gospel to the poor. Second, Jesus' sermon on that Sabbath in Nazareth is the only place he makes mention of concern for the oppressed. Peter, however, gives us insight into the kind of oppression Jesus had in mind. Acts chapter 10, verses 38 and verse 43. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, taken together, these passages about the poor paint a clear picture of Jesus' intent. The poor were to receive the gospel, have their sins forgiven, and be released from the devil's power. And that last point, underscored by Jesus' consistent practice of freeing people from demon possession. Now, what kind of poor would receive this gospel message of forgiveness and be freed from the oppression of the devil? It wasn't the proud pharisaical self-righteous, but rather those who understood their spiritual poverty, which is precisely the point makes in his sole remaining reference to the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5, 3, and you can look at Luke chapter 6, verse 20. So clearly, contending for the financially destitute as such was not his concern. 
nor was campaigning on behalf of the marginalized, the disenfranchised, or the socially oppressed. Jesus' central concern was bringing forth a kingdom in a way that secured liberty for the captives through forgiveness of sin. The fact that every one of my remaining gospel passages about Jesus' mission makes manifestly clear. And on that point, I'm just going to let the record speak for itself. You know, from the outset, the Gospels paint a clear picture of Christ's purpose. The earliest reference time-wise comes from the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew chapter 2 verse 6, which is fulfillment of Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Zacharias weighs in next when he prophesies at the birth of his son John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1 verses 76 to 79, Zacharias said, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their, of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. At the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel told Mary to not be afraid, since she had found favor with God, and she's going to be given a matchless gift. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. Joseph, grieved and alarmed by the strange turn of events he faced, received counsel from an angel of the Lord in a, in a dream in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At Jesus' birth, an angel appeared suddenly before shepherds in the field, saying, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And then when Mary and Joseph brought the infant Jesus to the temple soon after his birth, they encountered a righteous and devout man named Simeon and a prophetess named Anna who served continuously in the temple with fastings and prayers. When Simeon took the infant Jesus into his arms, he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Luke, 20, Luke chapter 2, verses 26 and then 28 through 30. Then Anna spoke. At that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. That's Luke chapter 2 verse 38. At the outset of Jesus' public ministry, the, fore, the forerunner, John the Baptist, fulfills his father's prophecy. 
by giving the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Then he points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He also goes on to say that, this, that Jesus would baptize with spirit and with fire, with salvation and with judgment. One of the two. You know, in these initial gospel passages, a precise profile emerges. A Savior named Jesus, who is Christ the Lord, the Son of the Most High God, will be born in Bethlehem to shepherd, shepherd Israel. As the sacrificial Lamb of God, he will bring salvation and redemption through the forgiveness of sins, baptizing some with the Holy Spirit and others with the fire of judgment. And he will be given the throne of his father David and rule over an everlasting kingdom. You know, something seems to be missing here, though. You know, there's nothing in these descriptions of Jesus by any of his various forerunners that suggests a single element of the social justice Jesus that I, we talked that I talked about earlier. And as it turns out, there's nothing like that in Jesus' own claims about himself either. Now, Jesus had much to say about his own mission. He said he came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He made clear, though, his kingdom was not of this world. That's John 18.36, or at least initially. It was not a physical kingdom bringing social justice, wealth redistribution, redistribution, or political and cultural equity. Rather, it's a spiritual kingdom bringing forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. Listen, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. <coughs> Excuse me. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved for him, through him. You can compare that to Luke chapter 9, verse 56. Luke 5, 32. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. Then we come to John chapter 6, verses 38 to 39. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. See, for Jesus... Salvation is not economic prosperity, equal distribution of goods, or sexual liberty without judgment or shame. You know, instead, salvation came through belief in him, bringing forgiveness of sins and eternal life. John 3:16 uh, 16-17 For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Matthew 9.6 But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Luke 5.20 See in their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Luke chapter 7, verses 47-48 For this reason I say to you, Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. 
but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. You know, Jesus knew that in order to accomplish his, his mission, he had to suffer, die, and be raised again, just as Moses and the prophets had foretold. Luke 12:51. You suppose I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. Matthew 16:21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. John 12:27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Matthew 26:28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Then in Luke 24, verses 44 to 47. Now he said to this, he said to them. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And there you have it the complete record of Jesus' own statements about his purpose and mission. And again, something is missing. And what's missing is any evidence of any kind that Jesus saw himself as an advocate for social justice. It's not there. There's not a word. Now to be clear, there's no question that God in Scripture has a heart for the genuinely oppressed and destitute and Jesus, as God, shared that concern, as did his church. When Jesus encountered deep human need, he responded with compassionate, compassionate action, characteristically healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and in two instances, physically, physically feeding multitudes. But even so, Jesus' principal purpose was redressing spiritual poverty, not rectifying social inequities. Now reading through all those Bible passages and listening to me talk about them may have been a bit much, but I have a point. Near the end of Jesus' life, he asked his disciples the most important question anyone can consider. Matthew 16:15. Who do you say that I am? Now the answer any person gives to that question seals his fate for eternity. So we dare not be mistaken on this issue. Now, what I've tried to do is put Jesus in his proper place for those who have become confused by the cultural noise. And I've done that by letting the record, the entire record, speak for itself. I isolated every verse in the Gospels identifying Jesus' purpose. And I couldn't find a single sentence where Jesus championed the cause of the poor, the outsider, or the disenfranchised as such. There's not even a hint of it in the sense that it's commonly understood today in the entire historical account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, did Jesus care about the poor, the downtrodden, and the marginalized? Yes. But he also cared about the rich, the powerful, and the socially advantaged. 
Jesus cared about everyone. And he helped anyone who came to him, poor beggar or prostitute, wealthy, wealthy tax collector or Pharisee. You know, the right answer to Jesus' question is Jesus' own answer. It's one that fits hand in glove with the message of each of his forerunners. He is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, the Lamb of God, the living sacrifice who secures forgiveness of sins and eternal life for anyone who bends his knee, beats his breast in penitence before him. It is the right answer because no other Jesus saves souls. And that, as it turns out, is what he came to do. Any other Jesus, Jesus, the mere moral teacher, Jesus, the prophet of Allah, the socialist Jesus, the Gnostic Jesus, the universal Christ Jesus, the spirit brother of Lucifer Jesus, the Hindu guru Jesus, even the social justice Jesus is a falsehood, a fiction, and an or an urban legend. Thank you for listening. Father, I ask that you help the listeners understand your words, Father, that you have recorded for us concerning your Son and your Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, Amen.